Solidarity, number 701, 28th of February, 2024, page 2. The Cuts and the Rich, editorial. The Tories are talking about the tax cuts in the Wednesday, 6th of March budgets. They will balance those with notional public spending cuts from 2025, which they reckon will be someone else's problem to implement. The Labour leadership has pledged itself to uphold the fiscal rules and also not to raise taxes on the rich and big business beyond spots like uh, repealing the non-domiciled exemption. This puts Starmer and Reeves and, most importantly, the working class in an impossible trap. Solidarity is pushing in the unions and the Labour Party to force Labour to increase taxes on the rich and big business so as to restore public services. The fiscal rules themselves are no scientific principles. They current, their current form was cooked up by the Tory government as recently as November 2022 to reassure the markets after the Liz Trust episode. The small uh, C conservative institution Hall government describes it as a matter of, quotes, the government's worse than fiction, expanding plans to which Labour have committed, end quotes. The plans are not just implausible, it adds, quotes, it is literally impossible to meet them because meeting them would require substantial decreases in the quality or quantity of services provided by governments, which quite obviously neither party are prepared to tell the public they will deliver, end quotes. The decreases are bad enough already. The NHS England's waiting list stands at 7.6 million. Council, uh, councils have issued nine uh, section 114 notices saying they can't balance their budgets and putting them on the chopping board for emergency cuts since 2020. Almost one in five council chiefs thinks a section 114 notice this year or next are very or fairly likely. This means great downward pressure, especially on adult social care. 70% of schools in England have less funding in real terms than in 2010. Other public services are crumbling, benefits are squeezed. Nearly 4 million people experienced destitution in 2022 and 1 million children, nearly three times as many in 2017. Poverty, not as bad as destitution, it's 3 in 10 children. The broader poverty rates was around 14% for a long while before Thatcher, 1979-1990, rose to 24% under Thatcher, dropped a little under New Labour, 1998-2010, has risen since, and is now rising again after a brief dip due to government payouts during lockdowns. The government borrowed heavily during the lockdowns. Parts went to bailing out working-class people on furlough, but more went to bailing out business into less contracts for often scarcely used PPE supplies and uh, test and trace schemes. With high debt, 
and high inflation and high interest rates, heavy government spending and interest to financiers who hold government IOUs as follows. £191 billion in the last two years, 2022 and 2023. The rate is falling a bit now, but we're still £79 billion in the year to January 2024. Lloyd's, HSBC, Barclays and NetWest made a total uh, £44 billion in pre-tax, pre-tax profits in 2023, up 41% from 31 billion in 2022 other big businesses is doing pretty well too considering we're in recession the answer tax the rich and big business take the banks into public ownership rebuild public services under democratic and workers control it's the rich who make no-go areas in february 2018 lee anderson were suspended from a council labour group after hiring a digger and placing concrete blocks to stop travellers camping in a car park. The Tories welcomed him in and made him deputy chair of the Conservative Party in 2023. Now many Tories are agitating against Sunak's embarrassed withdrawing of the Tory whip from Anderson for renting, quotes, the Islamists have got control of... Um, London Mayor Sadiq Khan, and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Starmer as well. People are just turning up in their thousands and doing anything they want. Khan, he actually, he's actually given a a capital city away to his mates. End quotes. Islamists, people who want to impose by force the rule of clerics or their version of religion, are a threat but mostly to ordinary Muslims on the streets of Tehran or Kabul, not of London. The real no-go areas for many are health care, because the waiting lists are so long, food shops, because they can't afford good food, and good affordable housing. The people who have control and whom the wealth has been given away to are the rich, black and white, local and immigrant, all religions and none, Unites workers against the rich, the bosses, the Tories and the bigots. Stop the Cuts in Nottingham by Liam Conway On Saturday morning, February the 24th, an emergency protest in Nottingham denounced the imposition of commissioners to run the city council. The move for commissioners, three months after the council's chief finance Officer declared the council unable to balance the budget, section 114, on 29th November, and a year after an external interim advisory board gained powers of direction over the council, may show concern in government that a growing campaign in Nottingham has the potential to mobilise many people in the city against cuts. One councillor has already said she will vote against the cuts on 4th of March, when the council next meets. Maybe the government is also keen to corner the Labour group on the council and come, uh, and come the general election, point the finger of blame at them. The task now is to use the 24th protest and the lobby of the budget meeting on 4th of March to persuade more Labour councillors to vote 
against the cuts and help lead a campaign of resistance in the city. That could, that could spreading this to other t- towns and cities facing similar cuts such as Birmingham and Coventry. In the letter to the city council imposing commissioners, the government says that the, quotes, commissioners are accountable to the Secretary of State and that they will be key to the to resolving Nottingham City uh, Council issues, end quotes. Those who run the city council should run only, uh, should only be accountable to the people of Nottingham. These commissioners have been imposed by a lame duck government facing wipeouts at the general election and conducting slash and burn before they go. Meanwhile, a campaign in defence of concessionary tram travel for 150,000 county residents threatened by the Tory Controls County Council has resulted in the council, led by Tory MP uh, Ben Bradley, capitulating to our demands. This followed several highly publicised lobbies of the County Council and demonstrations at key tram stops, including the one serving Queen's Medical Centre, a vital stop for concessionary pass holders attending appointments. The campaign has solid support from some Labour council, county councillors. The relatively small scale this campaign, like the previous successful campaign to save three local libraries in the city, shows it is possible to win fights against council cuts. Des Conway was the key um, organiser in the tram campaign and one of the main activists in the previous successful library campaign too. Des said, quotes, What these two campaigns had in common was the importance of ac- uh, activities, lobbies and user involvement. I was also involved in the Mobility Pass campaign between 2018 and 2020, which forced the City Council to reinstate 24-7 travel for disabled pass holders, which received amazing support. One of the saddest days for me and Liam Conway was that was when we both were both filmed by ITV News in March 2022 outside the then derelict John Carroll Leisure Centre, which the Council had closed in summer 2021, despite our heroic campaigns to save this much-loved facility in Radford. What all this shows is that if you fight, you have a chance of winning, but if you don't fight, you inevitably lose. That's probably why these struggles are called struggles. These campaigns are called struggles, and this current city council one could be the mother and father of all local struggles up to now, end quotes. The key in this latest uh, bigger fight will be to mobilise workers in the city with service users, the voluntary sector and the wider public, together with as many Labour councillors as possible in a campaign of resistance to the commissioners and the cuts in Nottingham and across the country. Such campaigns could save jobs and services, defend local democracy and see the biggest possible trouncing for the Tories at the coming general election. Page 3. Ceasefire, Peace, Two States by 
Ira Berkovic. At the time of writing, the outlines of a six-week Islam-Hamas ceasefire agreement are under discussion. The report said, quote, the deal apparently provides in the first phase for the release of some 40 hostages in return for the release of Palestinian security prisoners and a truce in the fighting of some six weeks. These would be female, elderly and ill hostages. The number of Palestinian prisoners has not been finalised, it says, but is not believed to be in the thousands, end quotes. But Israeli officials have said a definitive agreement was still far off. Um, Israeli cabinet member and Benjamin Netanyahu's likely replacement as Prime Minister Benny Gantz recently issued a deadline of 10th of March, the start of Ramadan for the return of hostages, threatening that Israel's planned assault on Rafah would then take place. Egypt, Egypt is clear, clearing land and constructing a wall on its side of the Gaza border. Some have speculated Egypt is preparing to accommodate Palestinian refugees fleeing an, an Israeli offensive. Others suggest the construction is intended to keep them out. Conditions of life in Rafah are abject. Gaza residents uh, near Al Halu describes life in Rafa refugee camp to Bethlehem's Voices from Gaza project in December. Quotes, We've uh, been here for a month and a half now. We're still 32 people in one tent. We're very cold and have almost no winter clothes. We sit close to each other and keep warm. The crowding is unbearable and there is absolutely no privacy. It's always noisy. All of this makes the stress worse. It's impossible to get sanitary napkins here, which increase the suffering for us women and girls. We use pieces of cloth and wash them after use, which, of course, is made difficult by a lack of water. Conditions have only worsened since. Protest Inside Israel, 18 people were arrested at an anti-government protest in Tel Aviv on 24th of February. At a protest in Jerusalem, Yel Adar, whose son Tamir was killed by Hamas on 7th of October, said, quotes, You started this war for the hostages, so why are you not willing to stop it to return them home? End quotes. Meanwhile, Netanyahu announced on 23rd of February the most comprehensive post-war plan for Gaza produced by any Israeli official since the war began. The plan would see Israel maintain indefinite security control with civil governance handed over to Palestinian organizations with, quotes, no links to any groups hostile to Israel, end quotes. Exactly which organizations are envisioned playing this role is not specified, since Netanyahu, whose definition of hostility to Israel includes uh, anyone advocating Palestinian statehood. It is hard to see any Palestinian organization passing his test. Palestinian Authority spokesperson Nebel Abu Rudene's words in response to Netanyahu's plan are self-evidently correct. 
quotes, if the world is generally interested in having security and stability in the region, it must end Israel's occupation of Palestinian lands and recognize an independent Palestinian state, end quotes. In order to undercut Hamas politically and foster Palestinian forces ready to make peace, uh, Israel needs to recognize Palestinian rights. Israel's far-right finance minister, um, Bezalel Smotrich, recently announced a plan to build 3,500 3, new West Bank settlement units, something even Israel's staunchest allies oppose. Those governments have, in the face of a bloody war which long ago stretched any reasonable notion of self-defense, well past breaking point, shifted to emphasizing the need for a ceasefire. In the past week, the UK government announced a plan to airdrop £1 billion worth of humanitarian aid into Gaza. The amount is measly compared to what the UK could provide, but it is also an indication of a shifting international and diplomatic terrain. The USA continues to promote its own post-war plan, which involves a civilian government in Gaza based on a revamped Palestinian authority, supported by neighboring Arab states and a roadmap to Palestinian independence. Self-determination. Any form of genuine Palestinian self-determination or even autonomy outside of Israeli control is anathema to Netanyahu and his allies. But it is the only just and democratic alternative to ongoing cycles of bloodshed. There are no workers' governments able to make their own diplomatic and humanitarian interventions. Nevertheless, the labour movement can still develop and stand behind our own plan for um, Israel, uh, Palestine, freedom and equality for all, and, and as immediate steps, an end to the war, an end to the occupation and the establishment and international recognition of Palestinian states alongside Israel. Prospects for such an outcome as for any, uh, any even halfway democratic advance are currently remote. We can only make them less remote by increasing efforts of solidarity with those on the grounds in Palestine and Israel who share and fight for the vision. Labour and Gaza, now back standing together by Jerry Bates. The Labour leadership has moved to support an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. This is good, although very late, very late. Local Labour parties have been passing ceasefire motions since October and Labour councils have come out in favour too. The procedural chaos uh, surrounding the UK Parliament vote on 21st February does not reflect well on any party involved. See Antidote column page 4. The Labour text passed is on the Labour leader's own account, worded so as to chime in with Australia, Canada and New Zealand's government's policy. Why? To appear statesmanlike and coax some Tory MPs to vote for it. In other words, the Labour Labour's Labour leaders were willing only to follow on when such governments backed a ceasefire not to be a positive force pushing and pioneering. 
They tailored their wording to petty parliamentary manoeuvring, not to the substantive issue. Labour has had plenty of opposition days to set in it set its own terms. The procedural rows come pri- only because it's waited for the SNP to set the terms on its opposition day. Some activists have made much of the Labour text saying that, uh, quotes, Israel cannot be expected to cease fighting if Hamas continues with violence, in quotes. In fact, all discussion and agitation about ceasefires to date has assumed bilateral ceasefires. Unilateral ceasefires almost always happen either very briefly or when each side thinks that the other will reciprocate but can't or don't want to, to, to be seen to negotiate a deal. Also, Israel does have a right to self-defense. No valid principle would oblige not to respond to all um, to new Hamas attacks at all to new Hamas attacks. The Labour text opposed Netanyahu's Rafael plan, but Labour's poor wording left open the option of supporting a slightly smaller offensive, still with huge civilian casualties. If some Hamas units broke a ceasefire with a few rockets, Israel's right to defend its civilian population does not give its license to raise Gaza. The Iron Dome system is is able to repeal most rockets. Starmer's initial response to the war to refuse to be to be even moderately critical of Israel's actions and seemingly endorsing the collective punishment of the population of Gaza was shameful. Some MPs now apparently uh, particularly agitated. Um, Labour strengthens its pro-ceasefire stance have little public record of interest in Israel-Palestine or activity on the issue, suggesting they are at least partially motivated by concern at the possible electoral consequences in their own constituencies of Labour's dithering. Many MPs on the left of Labour have been sharp and clear in their criticism of Israel's actions, but good as parliamentary speeches can be, Labour movements internationalists will do most to contribute to the cause of freedom in Israel-Palestine by directly amplifying the struggles of those fighting for it on the ground. Labour MPs Nadia Witam and Alex Sobel have used their platforms to promote the work of standing together. Others in the Labour Party should be should follow their lead. Page 4 Playing Parliamentary Games on Gaza, Toto by Jim Denham. On 21st of February, Parliament passed a motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and condemning the proposed ground offensive in Rafah, all of which is good. Beyond that, however, the rest of what happened in the Commons that night was a disgrace with the cause of peace in Gaza overshadowed by cynicism, opportunism and hypocrisy on all sides. The SNP was clearly motivated least 
as much by a desire to embarrass Labour as it was by concern for the people of Gaza. The Labour leadership was mainly concerned to avoid another rebellion and see if they could put a wedge into the Tories. The Tories joined forces with the SNP in walking out to discredit the vote for Labour's uh, text. The hapless Speaker Hoyle, in uh, breaking with parliamentary precedents and allowing the Labour text, as well as the SNP's, appears to have been at least relatively an in- innocence caught in the factual crossfire. As for the people of Gaza, half of whom are now packed into Rafah with uh, nowhere else to go, this tawdry display of semantics and petty squabbling by the by all the UK parties has done them no good whatsoever. Uh, one might have expected Britain's daily paper of peace and socialism to roundly denounce the shameful role of all the UK parties, but not for the Morning Star. The crucial issue um, was the speaker of uh, was the role of Speaker Hoyle, who has been blamed for everything by the Tories and SNPs. Um, Thursday, Thursday's front page headline raged, Common Rules Twisted to Save Labour Gaza Blushes, below which reporter Andrew Murray claims, quotes, Sir Keir Starmer prevailed on the common speakers to, to tear up the rules to get him off the hook in breach of convention. The next day, Day's edition of uh, 23rd of February uh, continued the attack on Hoyle with another front page leading, led by Murray, accusing him of, quotes, shredded parliamentary procedure by allowing first a softening uh, than the SNP's, softer than the SNP's Labour amendment, calling for a ceasefire with various uh, conditions, despite being told by his expert clerks that it would lead to chaos, end quotes. Leaving aside the strangeness of self-styled revolutionary socialists becoming arch-defenders of odd parliamentary conventions within the Labour movement, it is customary to have amendments voted on before substantives. Murray and the MS seem to be taking the claims of the SNP and, and Tories at face value. Trivial. Of course, it would be ruled out that Speaker Hoyle, formerly a Labour MP, was doing his old party a favour, but the explanations he has given seem equally plausible. In any case, evidence-free speculation about Hoyle's motives seems as irrelevant and trivial as pontification about parliamentary procedure. As for Murray's claim, repeated in that day's editorial, that the SNP ceasefire call was firm, whereas Labour's was softer. It is true that the SNP motion describes what the IDF is doing as a collective punishment and Labour's amendment does not. But does anyone seriously think that to use the words collective punishment, as solidarity is done, is the crucial issue here? The Labour amendment contains some wording probably deliberately ambiguous, that could be read as making an Israeli ceasefire conditional 
upon Hamas also stopping its violence. But in moving the SNP motion, Brendan O'Hara stated that their ceasefire call applies to all parties, which surely amounts to the same thing. Labour's amendment also contains some good points, but it's but uh, points like a call for a two states solution and clearly denouncing Hamas's terrorism that are not in the SNP amendment, but which the SNP on record agree with. So why does the MS claim that the supposed firmness of the SNP is the touchstone? By all means, denounce Starmer for his initial shameful statements regarding defending Israel's attack on Gazan civilians. By all means, point out that Labour's call for a ceasefire is much too late. But socialists should not be going along with pathetic parliamentary squabbling and point scoring, not while the people of Gaza starve and die. Rediscovering Dorotha Asner uh, by Eric Lee, founder and editor of Labour Start, writing here in a personal opinion column. Dorothy Asner is someone I had never heard of before, and maybe you haven't either. Asner was the only director of films in Hollywood under the studio system of the 1930s and 1940s, and she made some pretty remarkable films in those years. Her work is currently being celebrated at the BFI in London, and this week I go to see her last film uh, first. Uh, comes courage. Here is is how PFI uh, described her quotes. Her films were multi-faceted uh, revisions of Hollywood norms, paying sharp attention to the intersection of women's working and romantic lives, and. Um, romantic lives. Her protagonists were snappy and headstrong, subverting traditional gender roles on a mission to determine their own identity. End quotes. Subversive women in subversive films. That was certain, certainly on her on show in First Comes Courage. This largely forgotten film, which did not do well at the box office was one of several made in 1943 that told the story of the Norwegian resistance to the German Nazi occupations. Nicole Larsen, played by Merle Oberon, is a secret member of the anti-fascist resistance who has seduced a senior German officer, Major Paul Dechter. He confides in her military secrets, which she passes on to London uh, through her eye doctor. But the Germans grow suspicious, and eventually even her lover become, begins to have his doubts. The climax of this film is a chilling marriage forced upon Nicole in a church full of uniformed Nazis with Hitler's book Mein Kampf used instead of a Bible. At the same time as Dichte is marrying his lover, he has tested her loyalty by feeding her information to see if it is passed on to the Allies. Just before the wedding ceremony begins, he learns uh, that she is, in fact, part of the anti-fascist underground. 
Persian. As all this is going on, Captain Ellen Lowell, a former boyfriend of Nicole's, who is now an officer of the British commanders, um, comes over to Norway to kill the German officer. Things do not go according to plan, and the film ends in something similar to the ending of the far better known and better film Casablanca. Alan wants Nicole to return with him to the safety of England, but she responds with a powerful speech about how she'll be more useful staying behind in Norway and how if he won't quit fighting the fascists, she won't either. In a sense, she's giving a version of the speech that Humphrey Bogart delivers at the end of Casablanca. She tells him, quotes, Oh, but darling, it isn't that kind of world anymore. People don't dance and laugh and ski as we once used to, end quotes. And Judith Main wrote in her book about Dorothy as Asner, quotes, Nicole expresses views that uh, are more typically expressed by male heroes. The film twists the gender conventions of the war spy genre and in the process celebrates women's work not as love or romance, nor as a substitute for love and romance, but as what makes everything else possible, end quotes. Arsner, who lived openly as a lesbian, challenged gender and sexual norms her entire life. A long-forgotten last film is a bold statement of her views, which we can see now more clearly ahead of her time. Well done to the BFI for allowing a new generation of cinema lovers to see such a challenging, powerful and unusual film about the fight against fascism. Page 5. Work and Menopause, Women's Fight Back by Jessica Bradwell. Menopause at Work hit the headlines on 22nd of February as the Equality and Human Rights Commission issued new guidance on the issue. However, the guidance only affirmed what the law has been for the last 14 years and the facts that news coverage Trump trumpeted it as uh, a breakthrough can only mean that the employers have not been following the law. A key point in the EHRC's guidance is that severe menopause symptoms may well be classed as a disability under the 2010 Equality Act. This is not um, news to trade unionists who have been representing women who meet the Act's definition of disability as a physical or mental impairment that has a long-term, more than 12 months, substantial, anything more than minor or trivial, adverse impact on the person's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. Longer. Many women experience the menopause symptoms for a lot longer than 12 months, and yes, sleep disturbance, brain fog, hot flushes, and other effects can certainly have a substantial impact. Medication sometimes has debilitating side effects, and some women cannot take the medication. For example, women who have had hormone receptor positive breast cancer. With only 12% of respondents to a 2022 survey by the House of Commons, Women and Equalities Committee have thoughts any workplace adjustments and guidance is certainly helpful. 
workers and union representatives will be able to use it to up the pressure on intransigent employers to afford menopausal women who qualify as disabled their legal rights to reasonable adjustments and not to be discriminated against. Research by the Fawcett Society published two years ago found that one in ten women workers surveyed left their jobs due to menopause symptoms. And research by the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development published last year found that two-thirds of working women aged between 40 and 60 who experienced menopausal symptoms said that they had a mostly negative impact on them at work. However, I suggest that we frame this differently. It is is not um, the menopause that's caused women to leave their jobs um, or suffer at work. It is the work itself. Shift work, long hours, poor ventilation, workload and management bullying are all factors that make uh, work difficult or impossible for menopausal women. Menopause is a natural part of women's reproductive life cycle. Work is organised in a specific way under a specific economic system, capitalism. In order to accommodate women who are going through the menopause, work needs to change. Being anti-labour doesn't put Galloway on the left. I on the left by uh, Simon Nelson. The trade union and um, socialist coalition TUSC and the Socialist Party have endorsed George Galloway in the Rochdale by election. Galloway's former allies and bag carriers in respect, the SWP, have um, refused to do so. Already in 2022, the TUC steering committee gave uh, observer status to the Workers' Party of Britain, WPB, formed as an alliance between um, Galloway and the Stalin, Soci- Stalin Society supported supporting Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. They have since fallen out. Former MP Chris Williamson has already been um, whipped by the SB when he had his own vehicle resist is now in the WPB. Uh, Clive uh, Heemskirk of the SB and TUSC notes that, quote, some on the left criticised, um, end quote, <laughs> criticised TUSC when the WPB gains observer status. Workers' Liberty supporting supporters in the RMT which were then affiliated to TUSC, has also criticised TUSC um, for taking in Williamson and Sean Bloor, a conspiracy theorist from ZIST. RMT disaffiliated from TUSC in 2022 and had been little involved for a while. Uh, SP and TUSC seemed desperate to find others to link up as bad as bad as Galloway and Williamson, as long as they are anti-Labour. 
very little of what the WPP stands for is in tune with the SBE's proclaimed policies. The WPP is, uh, quotes, for the workers, not the, not the workers, end quotes, a tagline that can only be, it can only put candidates on the wrong side of the culture wars on trans rights or, or the Black Lives Matters protests. It offers up, uh, quotes, a migration policy that reflects the anxiety felt among the working class about an influx of migrants which appears to be out of control, end quotes. It warns against, quotes, apocalyptic green hysteria that floods our media, end quotes, and says there is, quotes, no need to be rushed, end quotes, into a general um, economy, in, into a green economy. The Socialist Party repeats the idea that Galloway is an anti-war candidate. What, what about Ukraine or Syria? The SB claims a victory for Galloway would send an important message to the pre-pro-capitalist parties in Westminster. Galloway himself confesses to a lavish lifestyle, pocketing hundreds of thousands when he was on an MP's salary. He is far from the workers' MP on the on a workers' wage, as uh, which TUSC uh, National Chair David Nellist won respect. The SB endorsement also comes dangerously close to backing the very same conspiracy theory as Asha Ali used whilst still a Labour candidate endorsing the idea that Israel deliberately had lax security at the Gaza border before 7th of October, in quotes, the hope of a pretext to go to war, in quotes. Charging Netanyahu with overconfidence and complacency before the 7th of October is one thing. The claim is quite uh, another. It suggests that the SB is falling into a severe of influence, sphere of influence of Williamson and Galloway further than they realize. Activist Agenda. The annual conference of the Alliance of Workers' Liberty, a group which publishes Solidarity, will be 27th to 28th of April in London. We're currently running pre-conference discussions about the issues under a discussion. The Trump movement, the Labour Party, um, prospects in the trade unions, Ukraine and more, and we will elect our committee at the conference. If you're interested in working with us and, e- and joining the discussions, um, email awl at workersliberty.org. Page 6 and 7. Trump the Plutocrat as Monarch by Chlorine Ryan. On decades, he was portrayed as the New York face of glamorous capitalism, uh, attractive to a lot of people. He was a child of privilege, yet somehow mysteriously like capitalism itself, so to speak. He was a self-made man. He inherited from his billionaire father, father, yet he owned nothing. He owed nothing to anyone else. He himself embodied success that was even 
the name he gave to a perfume he launched, Success by Trump. He put his name on great New York buildings. Trump was his name and Trump was his brand. It became the very name of success. People would touch him in the streets of New York City in the hope that some of his good luck and success might rub off on them. He was a totem. He was the smiling face of American democratic capitalism. Trump, triumphant, successful magic. Effortlessly, he became a TV star, uh, presenting The Apprentice for 11 years. Some people found it nasty, and Trump himself as nasty and uh, unpleasant man. His catchphrase was, you're fired, said to contestants, and he said it with relish again and again. The nasty side of capitalism? Yes, but not really. No one was hurt, really. In the program, it was all uh, make-believe, unreal. Capitalism was unreal. Privilege. In the show, Trump, the child born into privilege, was the monarch. He knew everything. He was king of everything. Nemesis, master. He was Donald's Trump. Then the man who said of himself repeatedly, I'm very rich, turned to politics. For the first time, a black man, Barack Obama, was a man, a main candidate for president. Trump and his father had been convicted for his discrimination as landlords against black people. Racism and others appalled that a black president focused and made acceptable their feelings about Obama through the specious idea that he had not been born in the USA and therefore was not entitled to be president. In 2011, Trump joined them. It became clear, it became plain to most people that it was a nutty idea, but not Trump. He stuck with it. He decided to run for president in the November 2016 elections. He didn't think he'd win. He stood to enhance his brand, to enhance Trump. He was a Republican of the party of the Conservatives, the rich and the backwards, though many of his ideas were more Democratic Party. He was for the right of the pregnant woman to choose whether she wanted to be pregnant or not. It had been America's law, American law for nearly 50 years. Evangelicals, religious Christians, voted Republican. Trump was probably an atheist, but no one insisted on that, and evangelicals backed Trump against Hillary Clinton, wife of Democratic Party ex-president Bill Clinton, 1993-2001. The deep state, the head of the FBI, helped Trump. He announced new um, investigations into Hillary Clinton who had used a private email server while in office. The Trump fights inflated this to a big issue, though it wasn't. One of the Trump's election slogans was, Lock her up. The FBI, um, James uh, Corney, a lifelong Republican, told electors with the authority of his office, not just before polling day, that she had not been cleared. 
It helped swing the electorate. South assumed Trump would sack Comey because he found him too independent. Trump won? Yes, but also no. Clinton won the popular vote. Trump became president, though he lost the popular vote because he won the electoral college calculated by block votes from each of the 50 states. The smiling face of the American uh, capitalism became president on a minor minority vote. When he won unexpectedly, Trump um, muttered, only in America, yes, only in America. After the 2016 election, the smiling face of American capitalism snarled and continued to brighten snarl louder and louder for four years. It was rather like a famous adult film of the 1950s, The Barefoots uh, Contessa. It is the basic Cinderella story, except that Cinderella, after the marriage, discovers that Prince Charming is sexually impotent in office. Trump showed what he showed what he was made of, life. But Trump thought he had been elected monarch, not president, and for life, not for four years. He behaved, tried to behave as an absolute monarch. He displayed profound and astonishing ignorance of all history of the American Constitution, of the informal rules that had attached to the presidency. He displayed a childish willfulness of someone uh, rich all his life. Rules didn't apply to the absolutist president when Trump was president. In this, the smiling face of capitalism showed itself very like like capitalism itself. Willful, arbitrary, indifference to human considerations, having only one unbreakable standard of judgment, what he thought to be in the interest of Donald Trump. Now he says that if elected president in November 2024, he will be dictator. He will control the Republican Party because of the credible threats by his um, followers all over the country to maim or kill his opponents and their families. His power in his party comes from the fear engendered by Trump's followers on Trump's direction. In the second E. Jean Carroll case, the names of all the jurors had to be kept secret to protect them from the Trumpists. He was radically unfit to be president even of a local council, let alone to be president of the most powerful country in the world. As capitalism by its very nature, though through the central rule of the profit motive, is unfit to rule our lives. This would be absolutist president never won the popular vote. As no electorate um, ever voted for what goes on in capitalism. Trump was fact-checked and computed to have told in excess of 30,000 lies and falsehoods in his four years as president. Facts became whatever he wanted them to be. He talked of the president as being above the law, able to shout people in the streets 
without check or punishment. At first it seemed to be a joke, but Trump meant it literally. The very belatedly and selectively partially um, critical press became, quotes, the enemy of the people, end quotes. From the center of power, he cultivated and founded and focused the fascistic elements in the USA. He became a Christian and cultivated evangelical Christians. Such people are a force in the USA. Their fundamental ideas that, that the Bible, the Bible is literal, the literal word of God, is a profound, silly, and obvious false idea, but one which tens of millions of Americans believe, and which empowers um, Christian nationalists um, to be what they want and say what they want. Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, sincerely, sincerely rejected the idea of evolution and thinks the earth was created 6,000 years ago. One of the saner members of Congress is Mitch Romney, who is unbelievably rich and a Mormon, that is, a member of one of the most bizarre and pseudo-religions. Repeat, Romney, whose religion is demonstrably utter nonsense, was one of the sanest uh, people in the Congressional Republican Party. Such um, religious lunacy trains people to be political lunatics too. Trump has become the centre of a religious force that operates in politics. That Trump was never fit to hold any public office was known, not only to relatively few. The media colluded in his lying and myth-making. Like the year before uh, and the year before that, Trump has all his life had lawyers to make sure that the laws do not apply to him. Last year, Trump's lawyer fees came to over $50 million. Delay, delay, delay has been his tactic. It is a very expensive uh, tactic available only to the very rich. Now the USA, US state is trying Trump, it seems, for trying to do it deliberately on the uh, 6th of uh, January 2021, what the system did for him spontaneously in the 2016 election. Most of the varied items they try to nail Trump on are capri- capricious, willful things that he could have avoided in classified documents issues, for instance. Page 7. His reasons so, so seemingly was to hang out onto the sense of power and self-importance having the documents gave him. They, they're mine, the sense of an omniscience, the sense of nothing would ever catch up with the plutocrats or the absolute president. 1.2 million Americans died from COVID, a large number of them needlessly. Trump will never be tried for willful mass murder. The backlash that has welled up against Trump and his making explicit, I will be a dictator. What he tried to do as president has brought many things to scrutiny. Trump has been found guilty in civil courts of the rape, that's what it was, of E. Jean Carroll, 
26 women have come forward to accuse him of sexual harassment or assault. Yet 74 million voters went for Trump in 2020. There is a fear that he could win the election in November 2024. It is possible. Trump has his own constituency, his own party, the Republican Party. He's a freewheeling liar on a gigantic scale. He lies as naturally and shamelessly as he breathes. For Trump, black is uh, mega red if he went, wants it that way. Tens of millions of Americans now follow Trump in defining reality as whatever they want it to be. There is no objective truth, only what some Trumpites have called alternative facts, which they can and do invent at will. Fraudulent. But Trump was always in business and public affairs, and for many decades, what he is now seen by most Americans to be a lying, fraudulent, self-publicizing conman. This was not a secret. Many knew it. Yet, so to speak, it was an open secret amongst some of the New York rich and some of the media. It is an absurd system that lets Donald Trump control so many lives and says that if he keeps within certain loose rules, then he can't be touched. It is a survival of the old monarchy, like so much of what passes as democratic in the USA, it is no real democracy at all. But it is nothing to wonder at the many that, at, that many Americans seem willing to surrender the bourgeois democratic principles, such as the American Constitution that features the Supreme Court as of them, to the dictatorship Trump that now openly advocates. Democracy has not worked for them. It must nevertheless, and as such as it is, be defended and expanded. We must make it a springboard for a better more humane, more honest system, socialism, democratic socialism. Page 7. Polish Farmers Block Ukrainian Grain by Dan Katz Reactionary mobilizations of Eastern European farmers to halt the movement and sale of Ukrainian grain products continue, especially on the Polish-Ukraine border. For the last two weeks, Polish farmers have blocked the border, on Tuesday, 13th of February, Polish farmers seized and dumped Ukrainian produced grain onto the road at the Medeka Shayani border crossing. The nationalist protectionist farmers chanted, This is a Poland, this is Poland, not Brussels. We do not support Ukrainians. Last week, grain was destroyed by Polish protesters after a cargo train was stopped. 2,900 trucks were backed up on the Polish border waiting to enter Ukraine. Passenger buses have also been prevented from crossing the border and the Polish protesters have also refused to make exceptions for humanitarian aids heading into Ukraine which would help Ukrainian civilians suffering from Putin's imperialist war. This is the resumption of simmering disputes between Eastern Europe, EU members and Ukraine. The latest round is taking place against a backdrop of widespread European farmer protests against EU regulations. 
which aim to reduce the impact of agricultural production on the environment and climate. The Ukrainian grain conflicts began two years ago as the EU opens land supply routes for Ukrainian-grown grain and oil seeds to help Ukraine's enormous agriculture exports industries, which had previously used Black Sea shipping to export produce. At the scale, at the start of the full-scale war in 2022, uh, Russian Russia was preventing all exports by sea. Tariffs and quotas on Ukrainian produce were waived. That reduced prices for grain across Europe. The EU's perfectly reasonable uh, justification was that the bloc wanted to support Ukraine and help those poorer countries which had traditionally bought Ukrainian wheat and maize to continue to do so. The Ukrainian military has now substantially pushed back Russian planes and warships from the Black Sea ship shipping routes, which has partially reopened the sea to shipments. However, Ukraine's production is enormous, even during the war. Much produce still needs to leave by land through Europe. Some European politicians have compounded the problem. The right-wing Polish party, Law and Justice, uh, opportunistically uh, mobilised its base in rural Poland on this issue. And the wretched pseudo-left Prime Minister of Slovakia, Robert Fico, has used the issue against Ukraine because he backs Russia against Ukraine. In general, socialists oppose uh, nationalist tariff barriers. These farmer protests are specifically aiming to keep food prices artificially high and workers have no interest in that. The Polish farmers have, are also arguing to extend proposed bans on Ukraine produce to include meat and eggs. There may be a case for increasing EU support payments for farmers, but better to do that directly than restore tariffs. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, called for unity and solutions and intervention at EU level. He rightly said the main beneficiary from the Polish farmers' actions was Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russia is now on the attack right along the Ukrainian front line and in mid-February finally overran the destroyed town of Evitika on the outskirts of occupied Donetsk city, eastern Ukraine, outnumbered 71 by Russian forces, and with no air cover, Ukraine evacuated Edvika <coughs> on the 17th of February. The Russian victory took place despite suffering enormous losses. The estimates of the number killed or wounded vary greatly, but Russia was probably losing 25,000 troops killed or wounded per month in the final three months before um, Avdika fell. Russia also lost uh, 500 armoured vehicles and tanks. Ukrainian losses were far less at a, a few thousands 
killed. Russian troops almost certainly committed further war crimes in Avdika, killing wounded uh, Ukrainian troops in the town fell on 16th to the 7th, 17th February. Ukraine is now suffering badly from a lack of US military aid. A 61 billion uh, euros aid package is being blocked by far-right Republicans in the US Congress. Students organize against uni cuts by a Northumbria University student. University bosses across the country are making serious cuts, but students and university workers are fighting back. Universities charge international students extortionate rates and have come to rely on those inflated tuition fees. The Tories have recently strengthened the hostile environment, um, abolishing visas for dependents of international postgraduate students. This has particularly affected Nigerian students, so some universities have not enough high-fee-paying students. The University and College Union, UCU, members at Aberdeen will strike for six days in March after threats to the Foreign Languages Department from senior management and have been supported by the Spanish and Latin American Society and the Students' Union. Oxford Brooks management threatened a number of departments with cuts and have now decided to close music and maths. Brooks UCU has been acting alongside the student-led Save Our Lecturers campaign against these cuts. The University of Northumbria bosses have announced a £12.5 million cut to the staffing budget. They have not announced any compulsory redundancies yet, but are offering a round of voluntary severance, which is unlikely to make up the shortfall campaign. Even if it did, it would still mean job losses and likely course closures. At Northumbria, we have set up Northumbria Against Cuts, a campaign to build student support for the dispute and put pressure on the students' union. We have published an open letter calling for calling on management to promise no redundancies and no course closures. Northumbria UCU is running an indicative ballot for strike action, which will have ended when this paper goes to print. These are, are just a few examples of the cuts being pushed through across the country, and at some universities they are now a done deal. Anti-cuts activists on campuses should form local groups and these groups should link up. Pages 8 and 9. Russia turns Ukraine's occupied areas into an armed camp by Simon uh, Pirani. After 10 years of war and uh, two years of all-out invasion, Russia is turning the parts of Ukraine it has occupied into a giant military buffer zone from which further assaults may be launched. The Eastern Human Rights Group, EHRG, has warned. The expansion of military combat training and transport infrastructure and the forced mobilization of local men was documented 
in a recent report by the group which champions labour and civil rights in the occupied areas. While military institutions multiply, industry across the occupied territories stagnates. Russian passports are forced on young and old, imperial dogma on school pupils. A reign of terror continues against all forms of protest. Here I try to outline this situation in the occupied areas as the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine goes into its third year with links to more uh, sources. Militarization. <laughs> the establishment of four new military units in occupied parts of Luhansk, Donetsk and Separizhia regions Sign of the signs of the military build-up noted in the EHRG report published last month include the expansion of paramilitary higher education institutions, including the setting up of last uh, last year of a branch of the Nakhimov Naval School in Maripol, the southern Ukrainian city where thousands of civilians were killed by the Russian military action in 2022. The opening of enormous urban warfare training facilities, the 27-hectare Soryanyi 8th uh, combined military training ground in Donetsk with a capacity for training three to 4,000 troops at any one time, and a second facility for Luhansk. Three more are planned. Um, Vera Vestra Bova of the EHRG told the uh, NVUA website, quotes, It is not the industrial developments of occupied areas that is important for the Kremlin, but rather strategic military development training soldiers and immediately throwing them into the battle against Ukraine, in quotes. The opening of four military <coughs> uh, commissariats that are conducted forced mobilization of local men. The incorporation of the occupied territories into Russia's southern military district and the formation of a Federal Security Service, FSB, unit in Donetsk and two Russian National Guard units. These services are tasked with monitoring the local population, the EHRG says. They can also be used as blocking units to curb desertions and retreats by Russian troops on the front line. The establishment of a new railway company, Novorossiya Railways. Its priorities will be to build two lines from Rostov-on-Don in southern Russia, through occupied Ukraine to Crimea, and from Taganrog to Maripol, Volyanakavka, <coughs> uh, and Donetsk. These would improve Russian military logistics and reduce Crimea's dependence on the Kerch Strait Bridge, which has been damaged by Ukrainian shelling. Pavlo Lysiansky of the EHRG said, quotes, This is systematic work by the invaders to turn Ukraine's occupied areas into a militarized zone. Military units based there will constantly threaten the rest of Ukraine's territory. There will be no normal life in the occupied areas. End quotes. 
forcible Russianization. Pressure is mounting in on Ukrainian citizens of the occupied area to accept Russian citizenship. From 1st of January 2024, healthcare has been denied to those without Russian passports. The, the authorities are also making plans to require Russian passports for internet use and for those without heating who need gas boilers. Bosses in local firms have started a renewed effort to compel employees to accept Russian passports, the EHRG reported. Quotes, for example, in a mine, the personal personnel department will write out masses of declarations of um, employees on, on employees' behalf and send them to the Ministry of Internal Affairs. School managements, universities and children's homes writes them out on behalf of parents. End quotes. The campaign to force people to abandon their Ukrainian nationality began in Donetsk and Luhansk in 2019 and in um, and Kherson after the 2022 invasion. Threats soon multiplied against those who refused. By May last year, Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin said 1.5 million passports had been handed out and the total has kept on rising since then. Russianization provides cannon fodder. The inclusion of the occupied territories in Russia's annual call-up in October last year meant that men aged between 18 and 27 were, quotes, subjected to conscription into an armed force at war with their own country, end quotes. A report from the UN Human Rights High Commission officers office stated, one of Russia's numerous breaches of the uh, Geneva Conventions. Children don't escape either. From September, 14 to 18-year-olds will have to do a course on, quotes, security and defending the motherland, in quotes, including military training. And bandits are turned into heroes to the youth army, Unarmia, a 29,000-strong movement that imparts military training and imperial ideology to teenagers. <coughs> a unit was added in December, named after Krill Stremosov, an official in Kherson who collaborated enthusiastically with the occupation before his death in uh, November 2022. And of course, the forced deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia continues. Sergei Miranov leader of one of the, the tame opposition parties in the Russian parliament has illegally adopted one of them. Passports are also a means of controlling dissent. The occupation authorities have prepared paperwork for depriving people of citizenship and making them stateless on the FSB's recommendation. This will be used against the, um, quotes, rising mood of protest under occupation caused by social and economic problems, end quotes, the EHRG warned. Ukraine's official position is to support those in or from the occupied territories who want to retain Ukrainian citizenship.
but a mass of red tape threatens to strangle anyone whose case is less straightforward. A report in Commons, the Socialist Journal, told how people who left occupied Donbass as children <coughs> and are now adults has been forced into a stateless, um, vicious circle, largely thanks to Ukraine's state's migration service. Industrial ruin. Water shortages and hazardous pollution in reservoirs and rivers is a growing problem in the occupied territories. The main source of pollution, the EHRG warns, is illegal mining, mostly small-scale open-cast operations, 900 including abandoned sites at a recent count. The group charges the illegal mine owners with responsibility for 64 deaths during 2023, mainly with workers employed with little or no safety procedures. The illegal mines have grown on the ruins of the Donbass coalfields not long ago, one of the largest in Europe. When the war began in 2014, there were more than 100 mines in the Russian-supported republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. At least 49 of these have been closed by flooding, according to a recent research assessment. In 2022, the republics sent miners to the the front in large numbers, 58% of the underground workforce in Luhansk, according to occupation authorities there. This winter, the Donetsk authorities pleaded with Russia to send workers to keep the mines open, while homes and pit villages that were supplied with heat from mines went cold when work stopped. Given the lack of safety standards, environmentalists are especially concerned about pollution from two long-closed mines, the Alexander Zakid's mine, which has stored hazardous waste since 1989, and the Unyi-Komuna mine, in which the Soviet authorities used a nuclear explosion to facilitate release of methane in 1979, and which has been closed since 2002. The steel industry, once Ukraine's prime export business, has also been trashed. Of the big steel works in Russian-controlled territory, the Ezevostel plant at Meripol, once Europe's uh, biggest, has been destroyed by Russian bombing. The Alchevsk plant, that regularly produced 4 million tonnes per year now does about half that amount, page 9. The steel industry in uh, government's controlled territory whose exports have been stymied in Russian bombing in the Black Sea is also struggling. After the 2008-9 financial crisis, Ukraine's annual steel output fell from about 40 million tonnes to about 30 million. The outbreak of war in 2014 cuts it to about 20 million. Last year it was about 6 million. Terror and repression. As Russian forces entered southern Ukraine in 2022, civilians were terrorized with heavy aerial bombing. The scale of devastation which Russia did its best to conceal is becoming clearer in 
Maripol estimates of the civilian death toll range from 8,000 to 25,000 or more. A report published this month by Human Rights Watch and others, others details damage to several hundred high-rise blocks of flats, hospitals, schools, and electricity and water infrastructure. It shows how the occupation forces resisted evacuation attempts and aid deliveries. An investigation by the Financial Times shows that Russia, Russian media film of the city's reconstruction is falsified um, window dressing. Many of the 100,000 people who remain in Maripol, um, less than a quarter of the pre-invasion population, are in ruined flats without heat, water and other necessaries. Bombings, uh, bombing paved the way for brutal structure of repression. Elected local officials and journalists were targeted for arrest in the Russian armed army. Arrived some, including Ehil Kolyakayev, the mayor of Kherson, are still being held. Most of those release, released have been subject to torture or ill treatment, the UN Human Rights Commissioner's Office reports. The attacks on civil rights are relentless. Russian courts st staffed by Russian judges have been introduced in contravention to international law. Cases that concerns the UN, including the conviction of women for posting on social media a video of popular Ukrainian songs and a retroactive conviction of a man for a protest held on Ukrainian territory in 2016. In the territories occupied in 2014, repression of political activists is especially severe in Crimea. Dozens have been locked up on trumped-up charges in a manner reminiscent of the repressive machinery in Russia itself. In classic colonial style, the Russian authorities are attempting, against local resistance, to drive the Ukrainian language out of schools. All religions except the Russian Orthodox Church face persecution. Not only have Jehovah's Witnesses, various Protestants and Islamic communities been targeted, but also the Ukrainian um, Orthodox Church human rights defenders, defenders explained at a press conference last month. Resistance to the invasion persists. The most recent report by the Luhansk Regional Human Rights Center um, alternative includes dozens of examples of small-scale individual protests. In Crimea alone, up until December last year, there were 590 prosecutions for discrediting the occupation forces. In Sopazenska, the FSB claimed to have arrested three teenage members of a group named Black Sabotage for attacking occupation forces. Comments. The Russian occupation of Ukrainian territories has much in common with other imperialist occupations down the centuries. It is accompanied by strong Russian nationalist rhetoric and by attempts to erase the language, religion and culture of Ukraine, historically Russia's largest colony. 
The occupation is underpinned by terror, starting with the aerial war on defenseless civilians, many of them in the south and east of the country. Those Russian speakers uh, that the, the invaders claim claimed to be protecting. Even now, two years after the invasion, we in the European labor movement who support Ukrainians' rights to defend themselves against this onslaught are often rebuked, not only by Putin apologists, but by pacifists who claim that the primary purpose of Russian's action is to defend itself from aggressive aggression by NATO powers. The character of the occupation and the militarization of the occupied territories with a view to further attacks on Ukraine further discredits this deeply flawed logic. The Russian occupied territories. About 18% of Ukraine's territories occupied by the Russian armed forces, including the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, annexed by the Russian Federation in 2014. Parts of uh, Donetsk region and most of Luhansk region controlled from 2014 by Russian-supported separatists who established unrecognized people's republics. These included most of the Donbass coal and iron-producing industrial region. In 2014-17, to 17, the population is estimated to have fallen by half, mainly due to migration to other parts of Ukrainians to Russia. In February 2022, two days prior to the all-out invasion, these republics were recognized by Russia. Parts of Kherson, uh, Mekhalayev and Zaporizhia uh, regions that were invaded in 2022. In September 2022, the Russian government's claimed to have annexed the whole of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia, including the former republics and areas still under Ukrainian control. Pages 10 and 11. The North Union, the Northern Union um, of Workers, The Road to Bolshevism by Sean McGammer fifth in a series of articles around the anniversary of the death of Vladimir uh, Ulyanov-Lenin in 1924. In December 1877, an explosion occurred at one of the St. Petersburg armaments factories. The workers there believed it to be due to the negligence of the management. Six workers were killed. An organized group of politically conscious workers had existed in the factory for some years. Stepan Kulturin, uh, who would be the main organizer of the Northern Union of Russian Workers and who would be hanged for an attempt to, attempt to kill the Tsar, had worked there. Um, the armaments workers decided to turn the funeral of the six workers where workers could legally assemble and a political demonstration into into political demonstration. They asked Semlia El Volia, Land and Freedom, ZIAV, for help, and the organization mobilized its support to join the funeral demonstration. A worker who, whose name is not known spoke about the funeral at the funeral, denouncing 
the factory management, he said they were burying six victims, not of the Turks. Russia was then at war with Turkey in the Balkans, but of the fatherly administration of the factory. The crowd thwarted an attempt to arrest him. The future Marxist leader, uh, George Plekhanov, wrote a manifesto to the um, armaments workers on the events. It ended as follows, quotes, Workers, now is the time to <coughs> understand reason. You must not expect help from anyone and do not expect it from the gentry. The peasants have long been expected to help from the gentry and all they have, they have got is worse land and heavier taxes, uh, even greater than before. Will you too, the workers in towns, put up with this forever? End quotes. In February 1878, an important strike broke out when 2,000 cotton workers who worked a 13-hour day struck to stop their wages being reduced. These were the previously most backward workers, half peasant and half worker. At first, they had appealed for justice to the authorities. The chief of police to whom they appealed promised to help them, but did not. Then they struck. Slaughter. It would take nearly two decades more, and the slaughter of 500 and wounding of thousands on 9th of January 1905, before the Russian labour movement would outgrow the illusion that those above them, and in the first place the Tsar, could be prevailed on to take their side. An organised group of workers was active in the cotton mills, but the group was new and inexperienced, so more experienced people went in to help. CIV involved itself. How precarious the work of these revolutionaries often was is shown by the fate of Sivist Aron Gobst, who made the um, uh, the initial contacts there. He was a former junior officer in the run for making revolutionary propaganda among the troops in Odessa. Four months after his involvement with the cotton workers, Gabovsk was caught, taken to Kiev and there hanged. Plekhanov, introducing himself to the workers as a lawyer and, and other civists, tried to lead and shape the strike. Plekhanov wanted to teach the workers by their own experience exactly how things stood between them and the autocracy. He raised the idea of workers' procession to present a petition to the heir to the throne. They did that peacefully. The petition ended, quotes, If our demands are not satisfied, we will know that we have no one in whom we can hope, uh, that no one will defend us, and that we must trust in ourselves, in our end, in our own arms. End quotes. Ziv <coughs> collected money for the strikes from middle-class sympathisers. They promised an attempt to spread the strike to other factories, thus helping the workers understand the power of their own solidarity and could, could give them. Ziv arranged for short reports on the strike movement by Plekhanov to be published in a conventional newspaper. When the reports of their deeds were read out to them, 
workers felt enhanced by their own reflection in prints. The strike ended when some workers went back to work believing vague promises and the remainder were driven back force by back by force. Some workers learnt that the heir of to the throne was no friend of theirs. Strikes in cotton broke out um, out, out at intervals throughout the winter to be met by extreme political violence and arrests. A large-scale battle in the centre of St. Petersburg was fought between police and workers trying to free arrested comrades. Workers began to see that politics, the overall power in society, had to be an integral part of their struggle. It was a lesson that would lead them to back the politics by terrorism of the Nerodzhnya Volya in the months ahead. St. Petersburg experienced 26 such strikes between 1877 and 1879. Sometimes the workers won, stopping wage cuts, for example. They established uh, connections factory to factory, and they built the Northern Union of Russian Workers. It was founded by the skilled metal workers, better paid and better educated than the cotton workers. A nucleus had been formed in 1876 of men who had made themselves living links between the different factories by getting jobs in them successively. At the height of the strike wave, they founded the Northern Union of Russian Workers. Their rules and program were agreed in the course of two meetings at the end of December 1878. Siv printed their program. It was to be a select organisation. Each candidate for membership had to be introduced by at least two members. Each member must know the programme of the union and the essentials of its doctrine. The organisation would establish an illegal library whose use was not confined to members of the union. Kulturin The leader in this enterprise was Stepan Kalturin, who would end his life on the gallows as a member of Narodznya Volya. He came from a family of prosperous peasants and had had a good education. He was a blacksmith and mechanic who became a socialist in his mid-teens and almost uh, went to America to find a utopian society colony. Page 11. Uh, Plekhanov wrote a description of him, quote, young, tall and strong, with a fine complexion and expressive eyes. He impressed us <clears throat> as a splendid fellow, but his engaging uh, and at the same time rather ordinary appearance did not re reveal the strength of his character and his exceptional intelligence. What mostly struck me in his behaviour was his retiring almost feminine uh, gentleness, not that he himself did not want to speak, um, and and just what his working class comrades, but with the intelligence here also, when his activities were still on the right side of the law, he willingly met students and tried to make their acquaintance, getting every kind of information from them and borrowing books. He often stayed with them until midnight, but he was 
very rare, but he very rarely gave his own opinions. His host would grow excited, delighted at the chance to enlighten an ignorant workman, and would speak at great length, theorizing in the most popular way possible. Stepan would stay there listening, only rarely did he put in a word of his own, and he would gaze carefully, looking up at the speaker. Every now and then his intelligent eyes would reflect an amiable irony. That was always an element of irony in his relations with the students. With the workers he behaved in a very different way. He looked upon them as more solid and, so to speak, more natural revolutionaries, and he looked after them like a loving nurse. He taught them, he sought books and work for them, he made peace among them when they quarrelled, and he scolded the guilty. Among the workers of St. Petersburg there were people just as educated and competent as he was. They were men who had seen another world, who had lived abroad. The secret of the enormous influence of what he, what can be called Stepan's dictatorship, lay in the tireless attention which he devoted to each single thing. Even before meetings began, he spoke with everyone to find out the general state of mind. He considered all sides of the question, and so naturally he was the most prepared of all. He expressed the general state of mind. End quotes. Westerner, compared to those of Semlia Evolia, Kelturin was an extreme Westerner. This Westernism was born and rooted in him, in him thanks to the general situation of working class life in the capital, which alone interested him, and thanks also to various casual circumstances. Indeed, he had been in contact with the Lavrovists before the populist rebels, and the Lavrovists were able to stimulate among the workers an interest in the German social democratic movement. In the paper Semlia Aevolia of February 1879, Plekhanov reported on the state of, of the working class, quotes, agitation uh, in the factories increases daily, that is the news of the day. Um, Venturi, the first month of 1879 constitutes the golden age of the Northern Union. All the working class districts of St. Petersburg had their own organized groups linked to the central body. They could count on about 200 organized men and 200 more in reserve, carefully distributed in the various factories. Their library was the library, one of um, Kalturin's main concerns, was satisfactorily split up among the various clandestine centres so as not to risk falling into the hands of the, of the police. It was extensively used even by those not affiliated to the Union. End quotes. But the workers lived under the guns of the Tsarist state. Everything that the Northern Union of Russian workers did was illegal. Early in 1879, the work of a spy enabled the state to smash it. Kalturin escaped arrest. He would live to become a Naradnaya Polya fighter who would organize an attempt to kill Tsar Alexander II on February 1880 and be hanged after shooting a, a police chief in 1882.
pages 11 and 12, program of the Northern Union. To the Russian worker, recognizing the extremely harmful, harmful aspects of the political and economic oppression, the whole intolerable burden of our social condition which deprives us of every opportunity and hope for some kind of tolerable existence and which becomes more and more impossible to endure, which threatens uh, us with complete material deprivation and the paralysis of our spiritual strength. Um, we, the workers of St. Petersburg, at a general assembly from 23 to 30th of December 1878, have conceived the idea of organizing all Russian union um, of workers, which uniting their uncoordinated forces of the urban and rural working population and explaining to it its own interests, aims and aspirations will serve as a sufficient bulwark in the struggle for social injustice and will give it the organic internal bonds that it needs for the successful conduct of the struggle. The organization of the Northern Union of Russia, Russian workers, should have a strictly defined character and should pursue precisely those aims which are laid down in its program. Workers will be elected to membership of this union by at least two people who are more or less well known. Every worker who wishes to become a member of the union must acquaint himself beforehand with the program which follows and with the essence of its social teaching. All members of the union must maintain complete solidarity amongst themselves, and whoever breaches this will be immediately excluded. A member who attracts the suspicion that he has betrayed the union will submit to a special elected court. Every member is obliged to contribute to the general fund of the union, the fixed sum determined by the, at the General Assembly of Members. The affairs of the union will be conducted by an elected committee consisting of ten members, in whose charge will also lie the responsibility of the fund and the library. General assemblies of the membership are held once a month, at which the activity of the committee is reviewed and the affairs of the union are discussed. The committee has the right to establish relations with the representatives of provincial circles and sections of the workers of Russia who have accepted the program of the Northern Union. The library is intended to supply free of charge the needs of the workers of the capital, even those who do not belong to the Union. The cost of stocking it and of issuing books is to come from the Union Fund and from sums donated by the workers. The Northern Union of Russian workers, closely allied in the objectives with the Social Democratic Party of the West, lays down as its program. The overthrow of the existing political and economic order of the state is one which is extremely unjust. The establishment of a free popular federation of communes founded on complete political equality and with full internal self-government on the principles of Russian common law. The abolition of private land ownership and its replacement by communal land ownership. The just association organization of labor placing in the hands of the workers, worker producers, the products and the tools of production. As political freedom assures for each um, person and independence of beliefs and actions, uh, going on to page 11, um, 
and as it above all assures the resolution of the social question, the following should be the immediate demands of the Union. Freedom of speech and of the press, the right of assembly and meeting. The abolition of the criminal investigation department and trial for political crimes. The abolition of class rights and privileges. Compulsory and free education in all schools and educational institutions. A reduction in the size of the standing army or its complete replacement by the arming of the the people. The right of the rural commune to decide matters that concern it, such as the rate of tax, allotment of land and internal self-government. Freedom of movement and the abolition of the internal passport system. The abolition of indirect taxes and the institution of direct taxation corresponding to the income and inheritance. The limitation of working hours and prohibition of child labour. The institution of production associations, loan funds and free credit for the workers' associations and the peasant communes. That, in its main features, is the programme that the General Assembly of the Petersburg Workers resolved to be guided by on 23rd to the 30th of December. By tireless and active propaganda amongst its brothers, the Northern Union hopes to achieve results that will advance the workers' estate and compel it to start talking about itself and its rights. And hence, it is the sacred duty of every member of this union to do what lies in his power to carry out agitation among the working mass, oppressed and sympathetic to demands of justice. His service will not be forgotten by posterity and his name will be reversed as an apostle of the evangelical truth and will be written in the chronicle of history. Workers, we summon you now. We appeal to your voice, your conscience and your consciousness. The great social struggle has already commenced and we must not wait. Our brothers in the West have already raised the banner of the emancipation of the millions and we have only to join them. Arm in arm with them and we shall move forward and in brotherly unity merge into a single fearsome fighting force. Workers, a great task has fallen to us, the task of our emancipation and the emancipation of our brothers. It is our duty to renew the world, which is wallowing in luxury and draining our strength. We must carry it out. Remember who was the first to respond to the great word of Christ, who was the first bearer of his teaching that love and brotherhood would overturn the whole of the old world. The the simple settlers. We are also called upon to preach. We are also summoned to be the apostles of a new, but in essence only a misunderstood and forgotten teaching of Christ. We will be persecuted as the first Christians were persecuted. We shall be beaten and taunted. We shall be untaunted and we shall not be ashamed of their desecrations because this animosity towards us itself demonstrates its weakness in the struggle with the moral greatness of the ideas in the struggle with the force that we represent. You corrupt the world, they say to us. You destroy the work family, you scorn property and profane religion. No, we shall reply to them. We are not the ones who are corrupting the world. It is you. We are not the cause of evil. You are. On the contrary, we are going to renew the world, revive the family, establish property, and it should be as it should be, and resurrect the great teaching of Christ on brotherhood and equality. 
Workers, stand bravely beneath our banner of social revolution, join a harmonious fraternal family and arming yourselves with the spiritual swords of truth, go and preach your gospel in the towns and villages. Your future lies in this propaganda of salvation and your success depends on your moral strength. With it you are mighty and with it you will subdue the world. Know that in you is contained the entire strength and significance of the country. You are the flesh and blood of the state, and without you, the other classes which now suck your blood would not exist. Page 13. Iran. Steel workers fight back by Dan Katz. On Tuesday the 20th of February, the 30,000 militant resilient steel workers at the National Steel Group in uh, Avaz, southwest Iran, struck again. Workers are demanding suspended worker activists to be readmitted to the plant and that a, a job reclassification plan is fully implemented. The steel workers are furious that past agreements with management, which end its previous strikes, have not been fully implemented. The steel workers struck in November 2023, again in December and January, relying on mass meetings to take decisions. At one point, the workers sealed the entrance, entrances and exits to the site and threw out the corrupt CEO. The December action followed the banning of activists from the factory. Workers shouted, neither threats nor prisons will work anymore. The possibility of repression is very real. On 27th of September 2023, a so-called revolutionary court in Arbez sentenced 17 workers from National Steel to 25 fines, 25 men rail fines, about £40, and 74 lashes with a whip for disturbing public order. At the start of February, it was announced that a security case was being brought against 24 workers. A statement from the workers said, quote, We will not tolerate this which is revenge and retaliation for the achievements of our past strikes. The United Forces Voice of Labour has conquered this city. End quotes. On 13th February, some workers had been refused admission to the workplace, which further enraged the steel workers. Last week, the workers court rallied chanting, quotes, We workers will not accept humiliation even if we die. End quotes. They have substantial support from the working class of Avez. Workers in uh, Iran face terrible economic conditions and the steel workers are demanding wage parity with other steel companies and permanent jobs. Many of the steel workers are employed by a hated parasitic subcontractor, Shafak Rahian Contracting Company. Millions of Iranian workers are also employed on short-term contracts. Iranian workers' wages averaged around the equivalent of £150 for 192 hours of work per month. The minimum cost of living decently in the capital of Tehran is approximately £410 per month and the rest of Iran around £300 per month. The working class is suffering enormous hardships, which are compounded by the sense that those that run the cl clerical fascist Iranian state 
are doing very well. Recently, there has been a series of enormous corruption scandals, which the regime has tried to cover up. A recent hack of government documents also reveals that leading parliamentary officials earn 40 times the salary of teachers and civil servants. The ownership of the Avaz steel plant has been transferred to the state's uh, Meili Bank in 2011, following a 30 trillion real, about 50 million pounds, embezzlement carried out by regime-linked capitalists. Meili is itself effectively controlled by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, IRGC. The IRGC is the key repre- uh, repressive agency of the Islamic State, which also controls very substantial parts of the economy. An opinion poll carried out in 2022-23 showed that 60% of the population wants to leave Iran. In the last two years, there has been a very serious emigration of Iranian professionals, particularly of medics, which left the healthcare system significantly weakened. The Avaz steel strike is not only important for the Iranian working class as an example of solidarity and bravery, it is also important because Avaz is the capital of Khuzestan province, which is the centre of the oil and gas producing Iranian southwest. The whole area has been rocked by protests of oil workers since September 2023 and the issues are exactly the same in both the oil and steel industries, lack of permanent contracts and crippling poverty pay. The oil workers have not generally left confidence, uh, felt confident enough to strike, and most of the workers' actions have been protest rallies outside management buildings, but given 50% inflation that may not hold in the coming months victory to the Iranian working class. Making Reality of a Moderate Utopia, Socialism versus Capitalism by Martin Thomas. Quotes, The death row to money fetishism, wrote Trotsky, will be struck only until, will be struck only upon that stage when the steady growth of social wealth has made us bipeds, forgets, a miserly attitude towards every excess minute of labour and humiliating fear about the size of our our ration. Having lost its ability to bring happiness or trample people in the dust, money will turn into mere bookkeeping receipts for the convenience of statistics. Then he explains, the distribution of life's goods Existing in continual abundance will not demand, as it does not now in any well-off family or decent boarding house, any control except that of education, habits and social opinion. The future uh, seems utopian, looking from a capitalist world. Uh, sorry, that was end quotes. That future seems utopian, looking from a capitalist world where more, more, more is drummed into us from childhood. Within that capitalist world, it is indeed utopian. Even many relatively well-off workers in Britain now have a hu- uh, quotes, humili- humiliating fear about the size of their ration, end quotes, 
because a reduction in the ration may make it difficult even to get enough good food to eat or to pay the rent for decent housing. Such things as happiness are difficult to pin down in statistics, but many studies indicate that up to a certain level reached in the better-off capitalist countries in the 1970s, an improvement in the average amount of stuff consumed by people makes them happier. Beyond that, well-being correlates more with relative equality in society than with absolute amount of stuff. Wealth workers in wealth countries have quite a lot of stuff, but with that stuff goes anxiety about being able to keep up if they stumble. In Britain, healthy life expectancy was dropping slightly even before the COVID pandemic. In the USA, it is lower and has been dropping since 2010. We don't know how much increased mental illness figures reflect increased reporting rather than increased illness, but it is probable that actual depression, anxiety, etc. are increasing. Loneliness is increasing at, and among teenagers as well as among old people. Society is more atomized. Even at its most prosperous, capitalism blights life. In the 1970s, people talked of post-materialism, meaning a future where education, habit and social opinion, as uh, Trotsky put it, made for mutual aid and assured moderate sufficiency in consumption. Less now. That is not um, because some eternal human nature has overwhelmed foolish hopes. On the contrary, greed is good existed much less in many older societies, scarcely at all in some. It may seem odd that revolutionary socialists advocate moderation, but we do. Even in the early capitalism, uh, Baruch Spinoza taught, 1677, that avarice was a species of madness. In fact, a psychological imprint of capitalism's social madness. Yes, there are difficult, wretched effects. In a 1986 debate, Ernest Mandel responded to Alec Nove's argument that there would always be some extra stuff that people fear not getting by citing video cassette recorders as a luxury that we would readily dispense with. Almost 40 years on, most workers, even in poorer countries, would be nonplussed if we told them um, under socialism things would be good, but sadly there will be no video streaming. 97% of children in Britain have their own smartphone by the time they start secondary school. Are we happier because of having smartphones? Probably not. Actually, in person, socialising between teenagers is lower than it was before smartphones. But if you're in the 3% without, how do you keep in such loop as there is? Yes, the benefits of more cooperative and convivial life are known from human history. More cooperative dwellings, for example, in which stuff like cars and dishwashers are shared, will be something new, but something built on history. We will live better when life is reoriented to helping each other and accepting help with moderate abundance. Page 14. 
help us raise £15,000 by 6th of July. Donations from Eric, John, Sarah and several collected um, on the Ukraine demonstrations on 24th of February bring us a little closer to the £15,000 goal. Workers' Liberty supporters are discussing different ways to help reach the goal from specific fundraising events to having a push on specific publications, including extra sales of Solidarity and Women's Fight Back. Also this week will um, also be the last week you can renew Solidarity at its current price. From next week to meet the increase in postage, we will be raising the price. Take advantage of our frozen price before it is too late. Readers' suggestions as well as your donations are very welcome. Total so far... £604. Cohorts on the Railway, Diary of a Track Worker by Matt Shaw. As I've said in another column, when I uh, started on the railway in the 1970s, jobs tended to be poorly paid, but you had to practically murder someone to get sacked. So the workforce included quite a lot of old established guys, who had been on the job since the end of the Second World War, so ossified in their ways that it would have taken a chisel to move them. That started to alter with the intake, which I was a part of. We were younger and not so blind about how badly we were paid and, uh, and the conditions we had to endure. Back then, there was a sort of split in the workforce. With some exceptions in both directions, it was the younger workers who were more up for a fight. That was often over relatively minor, minor things like washing off, that is, getting clean before you went home, often on public transport. You would come off the tracks filthy, literally greased up to the eyeballs, and then would have to start trying to clean yourself in a hand-washed basin and some paper towels. No showers, no towels. After a long argument, we got showers and better cleaning facilities. Many of the older guys continued the refrain of nothing you do will ever change anything. Fast forward about 10 years to the late 80s. Most of the old guards had gone, but many of them were replaced by what I would call children of Maggie Thatcher. That batch of younger workers uh, coming into the job and seeing the outcome of the miners' strike, they were looking for security and a steady income a way to insulate themselves from the plight of the rest of the working class. It took us a while, but we managed to educate them in the ways of both the railway and the wider world. Some went on to be much more active in the union and had more political nous from their time with us. Unfortunately, there remained a core of what I call lumpens, people who were almost proud of their ignorance and who were often unremitting racists with no interests in listening to reason. Uh, now we are being lined up for uh, privatisation and promises of better pay for workers who went over by employers as contractors rather than directly. The lumpens swallowed a whole but by the time it had become clear that our union had no intention of fighting privatisation effectively and morale was quite low, some workers were looking forward to a heaven of low taxes and large amounts of cash, 
almost living in a bubble separate separate from the economy of the rest of the country. In the beginning, that worked after a fashion. Workers set themselves up as limited companies and paid minimum tax. Let's just say that state of affairs ended fairly shortly. A few years later, when you talked with staff working as contractors, they admitted that they wished they were still under direct employment with guaranteed holiday pay, sick pay, enforceable minimum rest periods, relative job security, and the union protection that we all still had. Um, it wasn't a bed of roses for us either, but the comparison with what those lumpens volunteered for made the arguments uh, for being in a union a lot easier. Exposés of anti-Semitism, keynote eye by John Cunningham. Gentlemen's Agreements, um, to Director Elia Kazan and Crossfire, uh, Director Edward uh, Dimitrik, both released in 1947, were two of the first American films to address anti-Semitism after World War II. Kazan's films stars Gregory Peck, a journalist who poses as a, as Jewish so as to be better placed to write a report on anti-Semitism in New York. What he finds shocks him. Crossfire centers on an investigation into the murder of a Jewish man in a hotel room. In the original novel, the victim was homosexual. The suspects were all serving U.S. soldiers. As the police and army, Robert Ch- uh, Mitchman plays the sergeants heading the investigation, struggle to unravel what happens. They increasingly have to face the reality that the killer, played by Robert Ryan, is motivated by his intense bigotry. Both films are notable for their confrontation with anti-Semitism previously underplayed or ignored by Hollywood. Today they look dated and often the specifics of anti-Semitism are lost as for example, when discrimination against the Irish is raised, discrimination against Afro- African Americans gets no mention at all. Although World War II has ended only two years previously, there's no mention of the Holocaust. Despite the limitations, these two films are landmarks in the struggle against um, anti Semitism. Page 15. Junior Doctors Remain Strong by Sasha Ishmael. Junior Doctors in the Med- British Medical Association, BMA, struck again on the 24th to the 28th of February. As noted repeatedly, in solidarity they campaign for pay restoration, a real terms pay rise, and a plan to restore pay to the real terms level of 2008 has shown energy and determination, at least by the standard of other unions involved in last year's disputes. These five days will take their running total in the, this campaign to 39. The rest of the labour movement should be doing much more to support junior doctors' fights on the picket lines through broader solidarity and through pressure on the Labour Party. The indications are that the junior doctors who are currently balloting to renew their legal strike mandates under anti-trade uh, union laws remain determined. Their most recent strikes, however, have revealed a problem. Last year, BMA members organised vibrant pickets all over the country. This time, 
there were officially only three, Manchester, Birmingham and London. This seems to be an issue not of declining enthusiasm, but of decision-makers in the union discouraging uh, pickets of hospitals in favour of token demonstrations, though there is evidence at least of a few members picketing anyway. Assuming a successful vote in the new ballot, which closes 15th of March, the left in the BMA should argue to reinstate picketing. The left in the labour movement should push as, as hard as possible to get other trade unionists and activists to join pickets and demonstrations wherever they take place, and meanwhile organise acts of solidarity with the junior doctors through as many channels as possible. Steedle Unions Call Ballots for Action by Mark Simon A spirited demo of 700 steel workers and their local supporters took place in Port Talbot on Saturday the 17th of February. Tata, the owner of the steelworks in Port Talbot, has announced that it plans to shut down permanently the blast furnaces that make steel from one iron ore and coal. Tata will sack 2,800 steel workers. Tata says that furnaces are loss-making and cites the need to move to a system of making steel that produces less CO2 to leave a cash from the government. The Tory government has stumped up £500 million to help Tata build a new electric arc furnace that will be able to smelt and recycle scrap steel on the site, serving, saving some jobs. Investment in green steel um, production used hydrogen gas direct reduction has been slow to develop, but most European countries are now developing this along with arc furnaces for recycling. It's a lie to argue Tata is a green plan because Tata will be replacing the steel made in the UK blast furnaces with steel produced in new blast furnaces being built near coal and iron ore reserves in India. Three unions have a membership base at Port Talbot. The largest membership is in Community and Unite and the GMB are also there. The union strike ballot of its 1,500 members starts on 8th of March. Days before the Port Talbot demo, Community announced they will ballot their members too. Keir Starmer has offered some more money to save jobs, but on present plans, the blast furnaces will be turned off in October 2024, destroying them. The strike might not be enough to stop this. An occupation could, but building up support for action is key. Unite is proposing a workers' plan for steel, including public ownership, £12 billion investment and a just transition to green steel. PCS, undermining a fight back by a PCS member. The left unity leadership, um, LU, of the PCS Civil Service Union is conducting a survey over just two weeks to gauge membership support for its 2024-25 pay demands and for strike action. LU failed to consult branches about the demands sprang the survey on them without providing campaign materials and has not given them time to campaign effectively for members' support. The survey was issued 
to members on the 20th of February on a non, non-HTTPS secure service, server. Some members expressed security concern for the handling of their data, and this has meant they have not completed the survey. Some members have understandably complained that the demands are too vague or unconvincing. For example, the demands include a cost of living rise, but do not state what would constitute such a rise. Another demand advocated by the PCS Independent Left IL, because real civil service pay has fallen dramatically over the last 15 to 16 years, is for pay restoration, but again LU has avoided stating a figure. Some members are asking, how much is PCS actually demanding? At the height of at the heart of these and other concerns is LU's disregard for the views of members and activists, its its pessimism and lack of strategy. LU has failed to lead even a propagandistic campaign over pay since it sank out. Uh, Sankar 2022-23 dispute and subsequently stood by as the Tories imposed below inflation awards for 2023-24. Many activists are concerned that the survey turnout will be low, an unreliable basis for understanding members' views and mood, discouraging to activists and be misused to argue against a properly prepared statutory ballot to reverse the decline in wages. By incompetence or intention, LU is further undermining the prospects of a PCS fightback. Irrespective of these concerns, serious activists should build membership support for pay action, including in the survey, and for the electoral alliance of the IL and other groups aimed at ending LU's control of the Union National Executive Committee in the NEC elections due in April to May. Page 16. Plan set for Drax 8 to the 13th of August. Environment by um, Owen Flood. On 24th to the 25th of February, Reclaim the Power held a national gathering of climate activists in York to plan a protest camp on 8th to the 13th of August at Drax Power Station, a former coal turns biomass power station. Reclaim the Power um, RTP is a network of climate act- activists who come together to organise protests and direct action against coal and biomass power stations. Beyond this, they also campaign for social and economic justice, e.g. against the hostile environment for migrants and against fuel poverty. RTP was founded in 2013 and since then has organised protest camps and actions against fracking Didcot Coal and Gas Power Station, coal mining and around other environmental and political issues. During the pandemic, its activity dropped. This upcoming camp will be the first one RTP has organised since 2019. Compared to Extinction Rebellion, the politics of Reclaim the Power is more explicitly left-wing and anarchist. It also differs in tactics and targets, tending to focus more on blocking and occupying fossil fuel infrastructure, power stations and mines, while XR and GSO protests have typically been in city centres. We see both networks, like much of the environmental movement, 
is inadequate in orientation towards workers and the labour movement. However, RTP sees itself in terms of working class politics of an anarchist sort, more than XR does, and activists who have played a role in RTP also play a role around the Vestas factory occupation in 20, 2009. Drex Power Station is a biomass power station near Selby in Yorkshire. Formerly, it burns coal, but, but has since been converted to burn entirely wood biomass. It has received over £5.6 billion in public subsidies in order to meet the government's net zero target. There are government plans to subsidise the plant further in order to extend its operation beyond 2027, with the government granting permission for Drax to add carbon capture technology uh, to its plant. Drax Power Station (coughs) relies on burning imported wood from the US from Draxone's companies that have violated air pollution limits in the US. Such schemes are, according to the European Academics Academy's Science Advisory Council, quotes, not effective in mitigating climate change and may even increase the risk of dangerous climate change, in quotes. Well, Drax has rightly caught the attention of environmentalists, it has also had its share of worker disputes. Last year, 180 Unite members working at Drax struck and won a 16% pay increase. Earlier this year, canteen workers at Drax, also members of Unite, went on strike after rejecting a one-off pay subsidy, demanding instead a pay rise. At the 24th to 25th February gathering, more Concrete plans for the protests camp were discussed and decided on. A working group was agreed to make contacts and where possible link up with Drax workers. We encourage anyone who agrees that the environmental movements must be more serious about workers and working class politics to get involved in these movements and bring the politics of orienting towards workers to the protest camp. In the past, workers' liberty activists and others have organised workshops on workers and climate action. We have also leafleted and talked to workers in polluting and renewable energy industries. By continuing and extending this work, we have the potential to recreate and bring on further struggles, such as the Vestas workers' occupation and other labour environmental campaigns. Couriers to Strike Every Day by Katie Toller Drivers for Deliveroo Uber Eats Just Eat um, have announced strikes every Friday and bank holiday over pay. This comes after two successful strikes in February. The demand of the strike is £5 minimum for each order. Because food couriers are designated as self-employed, They have no guaranteed basic pay, getting variable fees for each delivery. They also don't have automatic rights to sick pay, holiday pay, pensions or parental leave. A recent report looked at pay in the sector and found most platforms couldn't provide evidence that workers' pay was minimum wage after costs. 
Delivery Job UK, who organised the February strikes, reports thousands of workers struck on Valentine's Day and they expected 5,000 to be out on the future strikes. More than 100 riders in London formed a motorcade between dark kitchens from Kensal Rise via Nottingham to Battersea. The motorcade ended in Battersea, where the police blocked the road. The use of police shows that the London strikes have spooked the the food platforms. Ahead of the February strikes, Deliveroo emailed its partner restaurants, urging them to call the police and request they clear individuals from the location. If they felt under threat from the riders or saw them loitering or engaging in antisocial behaviour. Alex Marshall of the IWGB Union reported politics, uh, reported, po- reported police <laughs> told the strikers there was a dispersal order in place and that they would be happy if they had to arrest people to enforce it. Dispersal orders allow police to break up groups they believe to be causing a nuisance, harassment or distress, but the law says they cannot be used on workers engaged in peaceful picketing. The tactic of picketing dark kitchen has be, kitchens has been very successful. Data harvesting app Rodeo estimated that the first strike of, on 2nd of February led to a 50% reduction in deliveries in London. They calculated that this cost delivery £1 million in lost orders. Rodeo also estimated that the second strike on Valentine's Day led to a 40% reduction in deliveries in London and a 20% reduction across the UK. Since couriers began their public campaign on 25th of January, delivery stocks have fallen about 10 points. In London, the strikers can cause so much economic damage thanks to their good organisation, targeting dark kitchens, media visibility and high volume of business that they can probably win for themselves even without the strike spreading to other cities. But the EPS awards difference pay in the different zones in which they operate. To get pay up nationally in zones outside of London, strikes will need to spread to many new locations. If the strikes stay strong, spread across language groups and cities, they can win significant victories. In big cities, the tactic of picketing dark kitchens can win disputes, particularly with action intensifying to every Friday. Delivery, Delivery Job UK has, have launched brilliant actions. The strike now needs maximum degree of democratic control of the disputes in a national organisation of couriers. The IWGB, the union with most record among couriers to date, and Delivery Job UK should work together to build a single national organisation with functioning committees for drivers as, in as many towns as possible. Organisation which so far has been mostly online on WhatsApp, social media or Zoom needs to be brought into the real world. Page 17. Netanyahu out, end the war by Ira Berkovic. 
a coalition led by the left-wing Arab Jewish social movement standing together and women's wage peace has called another anti-war protest in Tel Aviv for Thursday 29th of February. Large numbers have taken to the streets in Israel to oppose Netanyahu and demand immediate elections. As yet, most criticise Netanyahu's handling of the war, but not necessarily the war itself. It fails it falls to Israel's anti-war left to persuade them that the cause of security and independence for Israeli Jews is not counterposed to the cause of security and independence for Palestinians, but rather bound up with it. As Standing Together puts it, quotes, only peace will bring security, end quotes. Ousting the government of Benjamin Netanyahu may be a necessary step to end the war, but not sufficient um, but but not sufficient step. For Netanyahu, the longer he is able to prolong the war, the longer he remains in power, <coughs> protected from corruption and other charges that could see him jailed. The likely likeliest replacement government may be no better in terms of its overall policy towards the Palestinians. Presumptive Prime Minister uh, Benny Gantz has sometimes criticised Netanyahu for compromising with Hamas and not doing to, Ga- doing to Gaza sooner, something like what Israel has been in recent months. And the last anti-Netanyahu governing coalition in power between June 2021 and December 2022 saw no advances for Palestinian rights, despite its inclusion of a Palestinian party Mansour Abbas's Islamist party, Rayan. But a Gantz government would not include the likes of the fascistic Itamar ben Givar and Bezali Smotrich. Toppling the current government may create more space for anti-occupation forces inside Israel, including within the country's 20% Arab-Palestinian minority, to assert themselves. It is therefore vital that anti-war and anti-government protests grow and indeed fuse. International solidarity with Israel's anti-war left matters, just as solidarity with anti-war forces inside Putin's Russia and other countries whose leaders pursue bloody wars of territorial expansion or nationalist vengeance matters. Vocal and visible international support can galvanise activists in often embattled minorities and spur them on to increased activity. Practical solidarity, especially fundraising, can also help expand their efforts. The fates of the Palestinian and Israeli people are intertwined. Neither can be truly free until both are. An international movement in solidarity with the Palestinians will contribute most to the cause of freedom and equality if it is also a movement in solidarity with those fighting for that cause inside Israel.